This episode is brought to you by Modal Electronics, who enable you to play and perform powerful sound with their incredible synthesizers. You can enjoy vibrant wavetable patches with the Argon 8 series, or you can produce with state-of-the-art analog-style synth textures with the Cobalt 8 series. To check out Modal Electronics' incredible array of synthesizers, go to modalelectronics.com. Modal Electronics. Dare to sound different. Oh, well, my brother, really, my eldest brother, Peter, he was, uh, he, he had a wind-up gramophone. I'm going back before you were born, of course, Tom. And uh, he used to wind it up, put the old, um, <clears throat> I'm not exactly sure what it was. It's some kind of vinyl, but it was very brittle. And if you dropped it, it cracked. Um, and he bought records, uh, on a couple on the Brunswick label and some on the old on the Columbia label, which in those days was blue and silver. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think what the songs were. He was in, he was kind of into New Orleans jazz, so it was South Rampart Street Parade and 12th Street Rag, which um, were the first records he bought. And then we progressed to vocals. Uh, one was a number one hit in UK and America. It was called She Wears Red Feathers and a Hula Hula Skirt by Guy Mitchell. And uh, and then we had Rosemary Clooney with Green Door, which has been covered God knows how many times by different artists and, uh, and, and several others. We also used to listen to the radio on Sunday lunchtimes and we'd both be tapping along with, um, with knitting needles to start with. And then, of course, as lunch was served, we were playing with knives and forks. My father used to hate it and threatened to turn the radio off. Um, there was a show called the Billy Cotton Band Show, which is a pretty raucous affair at one o'clock on Sundays. And he used to say, if you don't stop that tapping, I'm turning it off. I can't stand Billy Cotton anyway. You know, so. But that was, yeah, that was what, what I was brought up on. And then later I saved up to buy my own snare drum and stand because mum said that they, hadn't got, they couldn't afford to do that. Um, whether that was just a deterrent to stop me playing drums or, or what, I'm not sure. So you, start, I, um, you started off on, on just a snare drum? Yeah, um, there was this Ooh. shop in, Man in Mansfield where I was born, uh, which is where the headstocks bit comes from, because that's the winding wheel at the pit where the miners went down to dig the coal out. There wasn't one in Mansfield, it was up the road in Clipston. But um, yeah, so I spotted the snare drum in this stand and in the shop. And it was seven pounds ten shillings, which I guess was about ten dollars. And uh, in those days, when money was real, money, money. well spent. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, we hope. <laughs> and I, um, yeah, so I, I, I eventually I got that, and then I had to pay for it, and I paid for it by doing a, a butcher's round, delivering raw meat to uh, the, the families that had ordered it from the local shop down the road. I did it all on a bicycle. It was heavy as hell. You know, but I got by. Well, that, but that's, you know, that's hard work in a sense, hard work yep. to, to earn yourself the right to more hard work of, of learning a musical instrument because it takes a lot of discipline, a lot of time and persistence to get good at a musical instrument. And so how did you learn Certainly to play drums on, a, on, on, on the snare drum? And presumably, you know, that probably helps quite a lot with technique because quite a temptation for wannabe drummers well, is to go around the yeah. kit too much. <laughs> yeah, no, in, in those days, I mean, people didn't have big kits, you know. This is right at the beginning of what, what they called rhythm, rhythm groups. 
you know, which is a, a, usually a company of four or five guys that had managed to pay for instruments and, and start a band, um, which is what we subsequently did, uh, mates from school. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I learned a few marches and things. I think the first thing I taught myself was... Uh, must have heard it somewhere. I, I taught myself to do that. But my mum got me some lessons with a with a, a chap in Mansfield, um, and there was a a, uh, a, a, um, a training orchestra, a classical training orchestra that he played with as well. He, he was a very good tuned percussion player, uh, timpani, glockenspiel, xylophone, all of that stuff, and snare drum. Um, <clears throat> and he actually could play the kit, but he wasn't. He wouldn't call him a kit drummer really. He he, he got by, you know, worked for the local amateur operatic society. But I went to the classical sessions with him, and that's where I first learned to read music, and I guess in a sense developed my ear as well. Because when you're playing timpani, I found out much later on, you you sometimes there's a key change, and of course you have to tune the timps differently mm. for the key change. So yeah, 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 so which is a wide wide background, which is um, you know different uh, for those listeners who aren't so. Uh, in uh, in tune, uh, poor choice of words with uh, uh, with the kit. Although you know, dr- do people ever tune their drum kits uh, differently yeah, depending on the key of the song? I don't do it now, but um, the majority of the the keys um, a while back in um, um, in ten years after, when uh, in fact when Joe Gooch was with us after Alvin stopped playing with us. Uh, in the uh, 2000s, uh, I used to tune the kit to C, or as near as you could get it. You know, you can't get perfect pitch with it, and I would tune it to a, to a, an arpeggio, da, 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 da. and as near as you could to that. Uh, and be- I used C because it was the most common key to or the tuning to the keys we were using, which were, were A and E. So, so oh, right, okay. quite nicely on that. Yeah, fitted nicely. Yeah, um, but it was very, it was very hit and miss. I mean, you couldn't get it totally accurate, but it, it does make the kit sound good with the with the band when it when it's tuned like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've always wondered that, and that's, I mean, at, at the top level when you go and see gigs with you know big bands, and you know the toms just sound so good. Everything just sounds so crisp and. And tuneful. I mean, I guess that that's a big part of it. Getting getting your kit tuned up and, and yeah, well, well a lot of guys, of course, have a, have a crewman who who tunes the kit and sets the kit up for them and makes sure all the toms are sounding the way they should before before they even touch the kit. You know, there's a yeah. guy worked worked for us for a while, a guy called Prop. That was his uh, his, his nickname, uh, but he works most of the time with Ian Pace with um, Deep Purple. But, right. uh, he was very good. He used to tune the kit for me, and he, I know he does it for Pacey as well. Oh yeah, he must be uh, ama- amazing at what he does. But so, so for for my, for my listeners who don't know how uh, ten years after formed, you know how how did you uh, how did the band start, and and uh, and how, how did things kind of progress up until your you know infamous performance of Woodstock. I like the word infamous. Yeah, um, we we started out. I mean, I I did an audition with Alvin and Leo, Alvin Lee and Leo Lyons, and they were in a band called the Jaybirds, which was billed as the the biggest sounding trio in the country. 
And their drummer was a guy called Dave Quickmire, and he'd been giving me some lessons, and he actually became my mentor um, and turned me on to people like uh, Art Blakey, Alvin Stoller, uh, Joe Morello, all, basically all the jazz guys, but they were the guys who had the technique in those days. Um, and, um, I mean, that would be small technique compared to some of the people these days, Marco Miniman, for instance, and people like that. But, um, yeah, so, so he, he, he wanted to get out of the Jaybirds, so he basically coached me, and I went and did the audition, and I, and I got it, uh, purely because I was able to play the Chuck Berry bass drum with him, dun, da, dun, da, dun, da, for Sweet Little Sixteen. Um, and David taught me that. I hadn't realised why he taught me that, but that's obviously why he taught me that. And I got the gig because Alvin turned around to me after the, we'd done Sweet Little Sixteen and in the audition and said, well, you're the first drummer we've heard that can play that bass drum pattern. And I thought, well, thanks, Dave. You, you got, me, got me a gig. So then we went to London. Chick Churchill joined us, but he wasn't able to stay, stay couldn't go with us to London straight away. Um, and we did a theatre show down there, which lasted a much shorter time than we'd anticipated. And then we did about 18 months backing a, a group of singers, um, a, a three singers who'd had several top 10 hits, the band called the Ivy League. Uh, we did a lot of cabaret and stuff with them. Um, and then that terminated. Uh, anyway, cut long story short, we went, we went along to the Marquee Club in uh, London's Water Street, which is where Alexis Corner was playing. I call Alexis the grandfather of the British blues, John Mayle being the father of British blues. So, Interesting, yeah. Yeah, so Alexis had a support band with him that were getting quite popular, and they were called the Rolling Stones. <laughs> and so basically a lot of us of that period of the blues thing, we, we broke out of the Marquee Club. So we went and did our audition. We got the gig. We did an interval spot. Uh, it's the only time we were called the Blues Yard. Um, and then, uh, well, that was on a Sunday night. We did it with the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, um, which was com completely opposite to what we were doing. Um, and gradually we built up a following there and we got to headline there on our own and so on and so forth. By which time, uh, Cream had played there. Uh, Tuesday night was the big night. Cream played there. And then um, uh, uh, Jimi Hendrix finally was a big star. Jeff Beck played the Tuesday night as well. And when we then first came to America, we did a lot of gigs with Jeff Beck Group, which had uh, Rod Stewart on vocals and Ronnie Wood on, on, uh, on bass. And um, oh. uh, Mickey Waller was the drummer. Yeah, so, you know, that, that's, that's a very potted history of, of how we got to uh, the States. What? Started, started playing the clubs as well, like we had in England. Sorry, you were going to ask. I just said, what a title, you know, just, I mean, I've, I've read a few a few books and I'm, I'm looking forward to, to reading yours that mention all these places, all these names, you know, Alexis Corner, uh, the Marquee Club, uh, just sounds like such a an amazing time to be coming up in the music industry and finding success. And I mean, has it been glorified and rose tinted or was it as magical as it seems? That, that that period I really loved, yeah. I mean, there were a lot of us that were good friends, you know, that, that played at the, at the marquee and hung around afterwards or we'd meet in the local pub before the gig, you know. Um, yeah, we were good mates. Jeff Beck actually was a neighbour of mine for a couple of years when I lived down in Kent and we, we got on really well. In fact, he asked me to join the band at one time uh, before that. Um, 
but I knew that Jeff changed his drummers like he changed his trousers. So <laughs> although I like him, don't get me wrong, I think he's a great bloke and a fab, fabulous guitarist. I, I think Jeff is probably a one-off. There's no one else plays like Jeff does as far as I'm concerned. He's, he's, he's a real original. And, um, you know, it would I would have enjoyed playing with him, but I don't know how long it would have lasted because I say he changed drummers quite a lot. So I'm glad I stayed where I was. Yeah, yeah. It's always good to have, uh, a, yeah. you know, a consistency in I'm, the I'm just getting the stories for you. Obviously, in the book, there's a, there's more detail, you know. Yeah, yeah, of course. And, and reading, the, reading books um, about music is so much better than any uh, any podcast interview could hope to be i you know could not rec i'm looking forward to reading it myself and i could not recommend people who are interested in 10 years after to go and buy a book more because that's the only way you can get the the proper detail um so you were just talking about america and and uh, and getting um to, you know playing clubs there that would have led to woodstock but yeah we um, what happened was um our first we, we got we did a, a gig in england called the winds of blues and jazz festival and we've got a standing ovation at that. And Mike Vernon, who became our producer for the first three albums we did, got assigned to Decca. We'd actually done an audition a few weeks before that. We did an audition for the BBC radio, because you could in those days. Um, we failed it. And we did an audition for Decca Records, and we failed that one as well. And then Mike Vernon saw us at the uh, Winter Blues and Jazz Festival and said he wanted to sign us to Decca and, and, and got us signed there and we started making our albums. And the first album kind of escaped in America. Um, nobody really knew about it, except that Bill Graham, who was running the Fillmore West in San Francisco, um, did hear it and liked it and sent a telegram to our uh, manager, uh, which I still have a copy of. Uh, our manager was Chris Wright. And he said, if you're ever in America, like, yeah, like you would be, um, what, you know, would you play at the Fillmore Western and what would the deal be? And so as soon as we heard that, Chris Wright went crazy trying to find the money to get us over there, which he managed to do. I think he got some publishing advances, you know, on, on Alvin's songs and so on. Um, and, and we went and we got some, we actually got some tour support, I think, from London Records, which was Decker's American Arm. Um, and uh, we put another album together. We were working on a second album, studio album, but we were never going to have it ready in time. So we did a quick uh, live album. We're, luckily, the Decca Studios was right next door to this, this pub called the um, Railway Tavern in uh, West Hampstead. And the, what they'd done before with John Mayall, there's a, there was a, a room up to, upstairs called Kluke's Clique, which was a sort of blues rock club. And what they'd done with John Mayall was they took the wires from, from the Decca studio, slung them over the roof and dropped them into that room so they could plug into the mics and make recordings. And we made a live recording called Undead. Um, and that that's really what kind of launched us in America in, in record terms because we, um, <clears throat> we played a track called um, Woodchopper's Ball which was by Woody Herman and his herd, which is a big jazz jazz orchestra. And they did it, it was like We did it. You know, about four times the speed. I mean, I, I actually can't play that nowadays. It's too damn fast. But um, <laughs> that was one of the things that, that, that people liked about us uh, when we first started playing in America. 
Um, and there were travels, you know, we, we kept working around the clubs in America as well. And then eventually, um, 69, we, we, we were booked to play Woodstock. And uh, I mean, very important history here, Tom. Yeah, well, uh, it, it's it's still uh, like it feels like a dream to like hear about this stuff, like honestly. But uh, and and in terms of Woodstock, I mean, or more or less the same question that I asked about the, the Marquee Club. Uh, so I apologise for this. No, but okay. Is that uh, is that also is that overblown in any way? Like, and and does Woodstock hold a, a big sentimental significance to you? Oh yeah, I mean, we could never forget that. It's um, it was actually the film that put us on the world stage. You know, the following year, nineteen seventy, but we were building up pretty well. In America, we had started to play Auditoria by then, of like 3,000 to 5,000 seats. If we were on our own, I think we could have filled 3,000 at that point. And if we played with other people like we did with, we played with the um, Mothers of Invention, you know, Frank Zappa's band. We yeah. played with um, uh, Blood, Sweat and Tears um, and all those things. And also Bill had opened um, Fillmore East, which was in New York. Yeah. And we played there quite a lot. And so we built to a headlining position uh, on those venues before we, we played Woodstock. Um, but Woodstock, yeah, to me, it did what it said on the tin. You know, it was a, a festival of love, peace and music. Um, and, and I think, I'm correct in saying, I don't think there was any violence in that 300,000 or 500,000 people, or however many it was, you know, in those, the three days that the, the music was on. But a lot of those people had arrived several, some of them week, a couple of weeks before, uh, you know, coming from all around the world. Um, and certainly some of them arrived, for, were there for probably five, six or seven uh, days, you know, in not the most pleasant conditions because the, the storm that came up, uh, if you watch the film, before we played, there was this freak storm came up and it just drowned everybody, you know, and they were they were sitting in mud and wallowing there and they couldn't really get out to get food. Uh, some of them were, were, were very hungry. And that's when helicopters, they started dropping uh, food parcels in. And if somebody caught one and, and somebody next to them hadn't got anything, they would tear it in half. And if it was a sandwich or whatever, give it to them, you know. It was this amazing sharing and, 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 and real love, you know. Um, yeah. And it's a real, it's something we really should reflect on a lot these days. I mean, COVID yeah. in a sense is having that same same effect. Uh, yeah. Whether it last yeah. afterwards, I mean, it didn't last after Woodstock, sadly, not not in a great way. But, um, you know, the hippiedom and all that sort of newspaper hype, you know, yeah. um, but the, the actual freedom and, and, and sense of love and everything disappeared as well. Yeah, I'm sorry. When do you think that happened? When do you think the kind of because it feels like that that time is look, looked back on as a real time of like you know peace and love and all and all that stuff. And there are obviously cynics who would sort of say, "Oh, that's bullshit. It was just the same same as any other time." But I do really feel like there's something about that era. Maybe it's just because I love all the music. Well, I I, I think. Um, um, you know, before we went to America, there, there was there was uh, love and peace movements for about three years or four years before that. You know, started in San Francisco, 
uh, you know, those songs out. If you go to San Francisco, make sure you wear flowers in your hair, you know. Yeah, yeah, Scott. And uh, apparently Haight-Ashbury, before we went, was an absolute fantastic place for, 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 for the love generation, as it were. By the time we got there, sadly, it had degenerated to uh, a lot, lot of junkies. Yeah. Yeah, well, freedom, the freedom part of the whole movement probably led people to overindulge a bit. Well, no, I think that's a risk with all of those things, isn't it? Any changes like that. But um, if you look at the following year, we played the Isle of Wight Festival, 1970. And that was not the same at all. That, that's the business that moved in then. Uh, so it was a music business. You know, that was the accent on business. And... Um, the kids wanted that to be a free festival as they had at Woodstock. The bonus at Woodstock was that the promoters let it be a free festival. So I think that's one of the reasons also that it, that it was the way it was. Whereas yeah. the Isle of Wight festivals, they wouldn't let it be a free festival. The kids started breaking the fences down. They set dogs on them. They were hitting them with nightsticks. It was a totally different ball game. Yeah, yeah. And I guess the, the, the Altamont concert uh, it was another example yes. of kind of yeah. the things things changing. Um, I, I want to ask you because we're, we've we've more or less run out of time. So I want to ask you. Uh, well, first of all, I want to recommend uh, my listeners join me in reading from headstocks to Woodstock. But uh, in addition, I wanted to ask um, finally. Uh, uh, you know, you mentioned something there about COVID and how this relates to COVID, and uh, and yeah, I do feel like people should look out for one another more and like a doctor that I know is sort of saying, well, I don't understand why people can't be kinder to, to one another. Um, what do you think, how do you cope with living in the modern era versus what sounds like a, a, a glorious sixties <laughs> and a glorious seventies? And uh, do you listen to much um, modern music, current stuff, or do you tend to, uh, you know, what do you tend to listen to and how much music have you kind of been absorbing, making? Oh, uh, I used to listen a lot to a station here called Radio 2, which had a widespread of music. Lately, it's become a bit of a <laughs> dance station. Uh, it's kind of moved into what radio... We have four stations, Radio 1, 2, 3, and 4, and then some other ones as well. Um, and, and so the, the music I'm, I'm hearing, I'm, I'm tending to switch off and listen to more talk radio, I'm afraid. Um, I mean, what I'm, talk radio I'm, channel do you listen to? I'm 75 now, so yeah. <laughs> uh, I tend to listen to Radio 4 Extra Radio a lot. 4, yeah, yeah, because it has a lot of old series from way back, and uh, I, it reminds me a bit of my youth, I guess. <laughs> but um, just quickly, if I could just say to get my book, um, if you go to rickleetya.com, that's r-i-c-l-e-e-t-y-a.com. That's where you can get it. And if people go there to get it, um, you can get signed copies or, and I can make a dedication to them or whatever. The other route to go is to go to 10-years-after.co.uk, which is our official website. And there's also an order form on there. And there's also um, notice we have a new album coming out on March the 19th called A Sting in the Tail, the deluxe version. Uh, deluxe edition, sorry. Um, that's on Deco Entertainment. That's D-E-K-O. Um, and that's a studio album we did a few years ago in Europe. And then they've added four live tracks to it. Uh, we're all right for a minute. Um, and one of, um, 
one of the songs is I'd Love to Change the World, which was a big hit for us in 1970. Uh, so um, that's, yeah, we've got a lot happening this year. There's a Woodstock album coming out as well with the original six or seven tracks on it. That'll be in June, I think, or July. And then A Space in Time, which was the studio album on which I Love to Change the World first appeared, is uh, it's its 50th anniversary in October. Oh, the so big downside is we're not, we're not touring, we're not playing to anybody. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> do, do you hope to get back to that? I mean, obviously, yeah, you hope. Yeah, but, yeah uh, the agent, agents have said 2022 for live work. And uh, we are planning some different streaming things as well. If, if people keep an eye on Deco Entertainment, as I say, D-E-K-O, um, they'll be able to find out about the streaming things as well. Yeah, well, there's a lot. There's a lot to keep up with. I'm looking forward to starting with the book, Rick. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for your patience. Uh, and I hope your next interview goes uh, very well as well. It's my pleasure, Tom. If I get to, um, I take it you're in America somewhere. Are you? I, I'm in Mexico on the way to America. Ah, okay, right. Yeah, I'm making the journey over, but you've got to spend yeah. 14 days here. So I'm, I'm being quite paranoid because, uh, I mean, I don't want to spread COVID, but I also don't want to get it and be thrown into a detention center which i yeah, think would yeah. be uh, pretty likely because you oh, well good good luck with that because fingers um, crossed yeah we played mexico city actually in 2019 that, that was awesome. we'd never been there it was great yeah we had a great time yeah because your listeners on uh, spotify like the, the mexico uh, one of the biggest areas they love rock and roll here yes you know i right. wish that i wish yeah. I, I wish uh, the british youth had the same uh, yeah. passion as the mexican youth yeah, thanks. Thanks again, Rick. Great talking to you. Hope to meet up with you sometime. That'd be great. Thanks so much, Rick. Take care. If you're enjoying the Greatest Music of All Time podcast, you can keep up to date with all of our latest episodes for free by subscribing. If you're watching on YouTube, the subscribe button is located at the top of the Tom Cridland YouTube page. It's also at the bottom right of any video that you watch on YouTube. If you're listening on an audio platform, such as Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, you can subscribe at the top of the page.